the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. On this week's show, we look at the Public Accounts Committee's report on NAMA and Project Eagle. PAC member David Cullinan and Harry McGee of the Irish Times political staff will take us through the adverse findings in the report against NAMA and the Minister for Finance, Michael Noonan. David Cullinan also tells me why he believes a commission of investigation into Project Eagle would be a good idea. In the second half of the show, a panel of Irish Times journalists will take us through some of the topical issues of the week, everything from Ardaz IPO to a legal battle at the Mercantile Pub Group in Dublin and the latest data on Ireland's housing market. And don't forget, you can download this podcast for free from iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. But we'll start with Project Eagle, the process run by NAMA to sell its loans in Northern Ireland in 2014. They were sold to US private equity group Cerberus for 1.43 billion euro. But the sales process has since been marred in controversy with allegations of fraud and conflicts of interest emerging. There are also criminal and regulatory investigations underway in Ireland, the UK and the United States. On Monday, the PAC, the Oireachtas Public Spending Watchdog, published this report into the sale, producing negative findings against NAMA and the Minister for Finance, Michael Noonan. To make sense of it all, I'm joined in studio by Harry McGee of the Irish Times political staff and by David Cullinan of Sinn Féin, a member of the PAC. Harry, uh, you might just take us through the main findings in this report and give us the background to Project Eagle. Yes, well, Project Eagle uh, is the code name uh, for um, the biggest disposal of assets and property by NAMA until then, it was essentially all of its Northern Ireland portfolio. That was all of the assets that were owned by its Northern debtors. Most of the property was in the North, but there was some in London and there were some elsewhere uh, as well. And essentially what happened was that from about 2012-2013 uh, on, uh, and the details of this haven't really uh, fully uh, emerged. They're, they're still the subject of a number of investigations, a number of parties, and we can say that Frank... Uh, Koshnahan, who's a central player uh, in all of that, was one of them, uh, began a move uh, towards getting a single buyer uh, uh, for um, this huge portfolio of assets. Now, uh, Koshnahan uh, is a businessman from County Down who's based in Belfast, and he uh, became very close politically to the DUP, to Peter Robinson, to Sammy Wilson, and to others, and he was appointed uh, by uh, the DUP part of the Northern Ireland Executive onto the advisory board, the Northern Advisory Board of uh, NAMA. Now, they had no executive powers as such, but they were the people who would give the kind of the underground knowledge and they would also find out about the kind of the overall strategy of NAMA as it relate, related to the Northern uh, debtors. But he, un- unknown to NAMA, uh, began to uh, be part of a, a group uh, that uh, got interested parties. Um, uh, we should say that he he did declare uh, consultancy work that he was doing for, I think it was six of the debtors s- in s- Northern Ireland. During it, yeah, six of the debtors mm. and I think their interest comprised 50% of, of uh, NAMA's 
uh, overall uh, northern portfolio. And perhaps at that stage, uh, maybe NAMA should have raised a red flag in relation to him and said this is uh, a conflict of interest. Uh, it does raise questions of corporate governance. If it was somebody holding maybe a 2% or 3% uh, interest, fine, but 50% is, is a lot. But essentially, he never declared uh, that he was involved in this uh, project. And then two uh, other um, entities came on board, uh, a, a, a company called Brown Rodnick, or a legal company that specialises in property, and their local agents uh, in Belfast, Tuhans, and Tuhans at the time was headed uh, up by a guy called Ian Coulter, who was a managing uh, partner. And essentially, they um, it, it spoke to a number of parties. They got an investment company uh, um, interested in it, and an approach was made to the northern executive. And then there was talks between the northern executives and the southern government. And a, uh, a, a NAMA was also contacted. And then this process was initiated uh, whereby all of the northern uh, portfolio would be sold essentially in one lot. As a job lot. Yeah. As a job lot. Now, the northern executive wanted it to be done kind of hush-hush and quietly. And in fairness to it, NAMA said that it would have to be done uh, in a uh, public manner. So they set a process uh, in train. And then um, the uh, what happened essentially is that the company... Uh, that looked like it would be the successful bidder uh, disclosed to uh, NAMA in uh, March, I think. This is PIMCO. PIMCO, yeah, in March of 2014 uh, that uh, they had an arrangement uh, with three uh, parties, Frank Koshnahan, uh, Tuhans and Brown Rodnick, that they would all get a success fee uh, upon completion of the sale. And this became his news uh, to NAMA. Uh, there then started a very quick uh, process uh, the details of which ha- have been disputed, but the uh, uh, upshot of it, uh, Kieran, was that um, that Pimco was no longer involved, and then um, Nama started looking around to see if there were any other suitors uh, to buy uh, this uh, Project Eagle uh, portfolio, and then two others uh, emerged, and the one that uh, won the actual bid. Uh, was uh, Cerberus. Uh, one of the strange things that hasn't been fully explained is that Brown Rudnick and Tuhans, who had been the advisors uh, to PIMCO, uh, also became advisors to uh, Cerberus. And that's something that would have to be explained in any forthcoming commission of inquiry or investigation that happens in the north. Uh, Cerberus uh, was successful. Uh, Frank Cushton seemed to be out of the picture uh, at that stage. But when it came to light, uh, that Frank Koshnahan, uh, was, uh, who is a member of the advisory board, was also in line to get a success fee. Uh, that was essentially what opened the can of worms and it led a, to a series of events that culminated uh, with this report. So what the PAC was essentially looking at was looking at how NAMA handled this sale. It was looking at this sale from the start. How it came about. And this a report by the Comptroller and Comptroller Auditor General. He looked at, at how NAMA had approached this from a value for money perspective. I mean, the Public Accounts Committee is a public spending watchdog. Essentially, it makes sure uh, that, that public money is being spent in the most effective and efficient uh, mm. manner and there's no um, Which isn't uh, very often the case, it must be said. But no, anyway. the, I mean, public, public um, agencies and departments tend to be relatively wasteful in terms of, of spending mm. money. And the CNAG does, uh, by and large, does a very good job in invigilating that and making sure that they are hauled uh, back. He started looking into it. He looked at the processes and he identified, it, he, he identified a number of uh, issues which he uh, said did not uh, live up to the mark. For example... 
um, he uh, queried the manner in which uh, NAMA applied the discount rate. This is the, the rate at which uh, the value of property uh, would uh, have mm. fallen. And he said that... He said there was a potential loss to taxpayers, didn't he, of about 190 million? 162 million, I think, is the, the figure that was arrived at at the stage. He said, he said that the discount they applied uh, was too generous uh, to, to the bidder. They should have applied another one. And uh, the loss uh, resulting from that was 162. So PAC looked at that. Uh, NAMA contested. It's usually what happens when the CAAG issues a report is that the department or the agency will humbly accept it and uh, bow the head, they'll wear, sack, they'll wear sackcloth and ashes for a while uh, and, and accept their, their punishment. Uh, but NAMA contested it and contested it ferociously and, um, and challenged uh, the CNAG uh, at every turn. So then the PAC uh, became involved and uh, this report really very strongly backs what the CNAG uh, ha- had said, uh, Kieran. And i just read two of the, the, the salient uh, findings uh, that it made because they're the two probably that have uh, the biggest uh, impact. Uh, one, it says, the committee's view is that the sale of Project Eagle was marked by inadequate record-keeping, weaknesses in relation to the management of conflicts of interest, a seriously deficient sale process, and ultimately an inability by NAMA to demonstrate that it had obtained best value for money for the state. And it made a political finding as well in relation to the Minister for Finance, uh, Michael uh, Noonan. He failed to disclose to the committee in October of last year that he actually met uh, Cerberus on the eve uh, of the final deadline uh, of, of the bid. Now, he subsequently explained it, saying that nothing turned on it and he, he was right to meet them. And the committee never asked him about it in any instance. But the PAC, by a majority, because Fine Gael, uh, members and Alan Kelly of the Labour Party voted against this, uh, agreed uh, that uh, it was not procedurally appropriate for the Minister for Finance to meet with senior Cerberus representatives the day before the Project Eagle bid closing date. That could have given the perception that Cerberus was benefiting from preferential treatment. So, for once, in Oroctus report, that didn't really hold its punches. OK, David Cunningham, there's a lot of twists and turns and a lot of information in there. Just explain succinctly, if you like, to taxpayers as to why they should be concerned about this. Well, I suppose for two reasons. One, because the uh, Comptroller and Auditor General is the watchdog. It is a constitutional office. Mm. It has a job of work to do, which is to uh, evaluate value for money and uh, spend of taxpayers' money. And he did a special report, as Harry has outlined, into Project Eagle. And he found that there was systems failures, there was process failures, there was failures in relation to corporate governance, failures in relation to how conflicts of interest were dealt with, but also a probable loss of £190 Now, just to clarify that for one second, what happened was in 2014, uh, NAMA... Uh, recorded a loss of 162 million in its annual accounts at the I end think of that 2013. Was the sterling figure, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's sterling. It's 162 million sterling. So that was uh, those losses then were booked, uh, I suppose, in 2014. There was further losses, impairment charges booked in previous years, in the previous three years, to the tune of 478 million. Uh, pound sterling. So the total amount of the loss that was officially recorded by NAMA was £640 million sterling or nearly €800 million. What the CNAG looked at and what he doesn't say is that there was an additional £190 million sterling loss. What he did is he looked at why was there a £640 million loss and he found that NAMA had essentially two options at the time that they made a decision to 
except the reverse and query bid from PIMCO. They had the option, which was their strategy at the time, which was to hold the assets and sell them out over time and work them out over time up to 2020. And their own calculation said that would yield 1.49 billion or they could go for a loan sale, put them into one lot and bundle them and they eventually got 1.3. So what the CNHE says is it was two financial options open to them and they went for the financial option which actually uh, got them £190 million sterling less. But I suppose the more, more fundamental issue was this, what was the genesis of the Project Eagle deal? And we had a deviation from all of the standard sales practices that would normally be pursued by NAMA, almost all of them in terms of access to the data room. It was a cash-only bid. There was limitations. Mm. It was a semi-closed bid. And uh, one of the two remaining uh, bidders, Fortress, only found out about the uh, deal because of a leak. So they weren't weren't even informed formally by Lazards or or by anybody associated. So the genesis of it is, if I can just make this point, the genesis of this, and and Harry has, has articulated this well, was that this was a plan that was hatched by a representative from Brown Rudnick, a representative from uh, Toons, which is a Belfast law firm. Brown Rudnick is a New York-based law firm. And Frank Cushenhan, when he was a serving member of the Northern Ireland Advisory Committee of NAMA. And what Brown Rudnick said in a letter to the Public Accounts Committee when we were doing our work was that as far back as 2012, an initial meeting took place between Brown Rudnick, Toons and Frank Cushenhan. They agreed a process where they would preach approach potential bidders uh, on the basis that they would convince them to do a reverse inquiry to Mm. uh, NAMA and that at that first meeting they agreed their success fee of £15 million uh, sterling or fixers fees and they then held meetings with DUP ministers in the North at a time when Frank Cushnahan was still a member of the Northern Ireland Advisory Committee yeah. of NAMA. I suppose it should be said that uh, Frank Cushnahan didn't uh, give any evidence to the PAC um, and there are various uh, criminal investigations and regulatory investigations uh, underway and uh, no doubt uh, you know all of the detail will come out in the fullness of time. Mm. Uh, we should also say we asked NAMA to put forward a representative for this programme. Uh, it declined. However, NAMA did issue a statement yesterday where it uh, effectively... Um, refuted the uh, claims in the PAC report and it stands by its line that it got the best result for taxpayers at the time. That was the board's view back in 2014. It continues to be the board's view uh, in 2016 and it continues to dispute the findings also of the CNAG's uh, report. So I don't know how we square the circle on this. I mean, were you surprised that NAMA didn't in any way seem to acknowledge the work of the PAC or that it might have made, it might have had some failings in how it conducted the sales process? Well, no, I wasn't surprised with how they approached the the Public Accounts Committee because there was an unprecedented attack by NAMA on the Constitutional Office of the Controller and Auditor General. And I have to say that uh, we have to also hold the Controller to account in the Public Accounts Committee. There are often elements of his reports which we may not agree with, so we have to be as robust and be fair to all of the uh, people who come before the Public Accounts Committee. But anybody that has watched and observed Seamus McCarthy, who is the Controller over the last number of years, would see he plays it straight down the line. What he does is he works on the documentation which is available to him, which he got from NAMA. So he looked and brought himself back in real time to where the board of NAMA was when they made decisions and looked at the information that the board had. And the board was never given, for example, the option of the 10% discount rate. He says there was no proper value for money analysis of the two financial options that were open uh, to them. And I think what was more fundamental, because he says in terms of the conflicts of interest, this is the controller, that NAMA seemed more concerned with their legal obligations than ethical or moral uh, obligations. And I think what he meant by that was, once they were told they were legally okay, they proceeded 
and uh, it was business as usual. And when NAMA first became aware that Frank Cushnan had an association with Brown, Rudnick and Toons and was in line for a success fee, and this happened in March 2014, they never established exactly when that relationship first happened and if they did because we wrote to Brown Ruddick and they said 2012 we wrote to PIMCO and they said 2012 and had they known that at the time then they would have known this was a compromise process yeah. where somebody on the inside had an association with two law sure. firms and one of the Mind you, that there is no certainty that uh, had the sales process been handled in another way that we would have gotten any better price for those assets than, than what we did Harry yeah, I mean, that's, this is an argument that was made by Frank Daly and by others during the course of the hearings at the Public Accounts Committee that you that you suffered through, Kieran, as well as um, some of us. And they were saying that, you know, if you look at the post-Brexit uh, scenario, that property prices in the North have been very unstable after that. Now, to me, that was a little bit of post-hoc rationalisation. You just really have to look at the facts as they were at the time mm. and not really apply the filter uh, of today. It but should also be said that this was the, the first of the large sale uh, loan sales by NAMA. So maybe it was a bit of a learning curve for them. It, it was. I mean, there are two points I think that are interesting. I mean, at one of the points, one of the big points that was at issue was in relation to this uh, application of a 10% discount. And I think what, what did NAMA... Uh, but made it difficult for them in terms of the hearing was that they had no documentary evidence uh, to back up its its assertion that the ten percent was the appropriate rate because they destroyed mm. the the the, uh, the the no again Nama have said that that's in line with best business practice absolutely yeah I mean Sean Fleming made a fair point yesterday saying that I mean they're a state agency and he says the same rules should apply to them as any other state agency and all records should be uh, mm. retained I think Nama would disagree with that but anyway, yeah go but ahead. Well, Seamus McCarthy essentially uh, in in his report he 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 said that. There was the the five point five percent discount was a more appropriate rate, and this remained a big and still remains uh, a big point of conflict between the CNAG and in relation to NAMA. And just maybe just look at the politics of it for a, a second. Some of the uh, the statements yesterday were quite interesting, especially from the northern parties, from Sinn Fein and from the SDLP, in relation to the political overtones behind uh, all of this. It was clear that the DUP were very unhappy. Uh, that a Republic of Irish Ireland state agency controlled such huge swathe of northern property and northern assets and wanted NAMA to get out of it quickly. And it's, there's no doubt that they tried to put political pressure on the government to do so. And there's one communication where, where um, the, the, those who were bidding were looking for a closed process, a secret process, uh, but NAMA was resisting this. And then there was a communication from the Northern Ireland office of Sammy Wilson asking, uh, making a phone call to, to Michael Noonan's office asking for the process to be a, a closed one. So there's political pressure uh, brought to bear. I think from a Southern perspective uh, as well, I think there, there, there does seem to be an impression, though there's no documentary evidence to, to support this, is that NAMA and the government and the Irish authorities wanted to be done with this portfolio as quickly as possible yeah, yeah. and were keen to accelerate it in, in any way possible. One and I think that that, that led to difficulties. Make, just make one point which I think is important. The Public Accounts Committee or no member of the Public Accounts Committee is alleging any wrongdoing on the part of anybody on the NAMA board or anybody who is a part of the NAMA executive. Our concerns or criticisms were in relation to breaches in process and procedures and corporate governance. And obviously there's an issue in relation to Frank Cushenham and these are allegations and they have to be looked yeah. at. There's criminal investigations which are ongoing. 
I do believe there's a need for a, a, a tribunal of investigation or commission of investigation to look at this more deeply. There's a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, Harry was right earlier when he set out the parameters upon which the Public Accounts Committee was doing its work. We were not allowed to stray into issues that touched too much on conflicts of interest. We were not in a position to uh, publish findings of fact. We're uh, precluded from doing that because of the mm. limitations of the Constitution. That can only be done through a full commission of investigation. So for all of the reasons that uh, we have outlined in terms of the conflicts of interest, the genesis of this deal, uh, the politics of it up north and, and all of those issues, uh, this needs to be dealt with. Mm. And the final point I'll make in relation to the very mild criticism of Michael Noonan, where it was a criticism of procedure more so than him personally, and yet we had such a backlash from the Fine Gael members that they voted against the... And Alan the Kelly of Labour. Yes, and they voted against the entire report. Well, he voted for the report, but the Fine Gael members of the committee voted against the report. And what was sad about that was this was the first time in the history of the state yeah. that the pact divided on an issue. And, and we had a choice we could have buckled as a committee and then our report would not have done, I believe, the process justice or we hold a line on what we see as doing our job, holding people to account and making sure that our report is fair and balanced. And I think we did that. And it's just unfortunate that that political slant, if you like, crept into it in sure. the last couple of weeks. And finally, David, this commission of investigation has been called for, um, and I think it's been agreed in principle by the party leaders in, in the Dáil, and no doubt it'll be de debated in the coming weeks. But some people would argue that uh, we're in danger of throwing good money after bad here, um, particularly given the fact that a number of the main players in this transaction are outside the state. There's no compelability there in terms of calling them for any commission. And we also have these criminal investigations and regulatory investigations underway in three other in three different jurisdictions. Therefore, that could slow up the whole process. There could be a lot of legal obstacles in the way of, of this commission of inquiry. And we've seen with other commissions of inquiry, notably with IBRC, the problems um, that you know, you know are entailed in, the, in that kind of work. It could go on for years and years and cost us millions of euro. And we might not actually find out much more than what we already well, first know. First of all, that's down to the terms of reference that any commission of investigation will be given. But if our starting point to doing the right thing is that we are making a presumption that people will not cooperate, then we would have no justice system at all. So you obviously have to make a decision. Are there issues here that need to be examined and need to be investigated? The Public Accounts Committee was not equipped and was not in a position to deal with all of the alleged criminal wrongdoing by individuals or other areas of wrongdoing. We just weren't in a position to do that. We carried out an examination of a loan sale based on value for money. So I believe clearly we do need a commission of investigation. The terms of reference can deal with some of those concerns that you have. And I would appeal to people, including uh, politicians in the North and others, to cooperate fully with any commission of investigation. By the way, Martin McGuinness was the only senior politician yeah. in the North that actually did appear before the Public Accounts Committee. Now, will they do it? That's a matter for them. And, right. and we Harry's can't shaking his head. I don't no. think they'll do it. I think the cross-jurisdictional nature of it just is going to create difficulties and you're not going to get cooperation from those uh, who would be hostile to the uh, Republic of Ireland and its process. And I just think it would be fought with difficulties. I think it might be better perhaps to look at it uh, once the investigations in the North have run their course rather than looking at it now because I, I think that it will be limited and I think it will be costly and I just think that, that people will be disappointed by its findings.
Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Harry McGee and David Cullinan. We'll take a short break now. When we return, I'll be joined by a panel of Irish Times business journalists to discuss everything from the latest trends in housing to our dad's IPO and a legal dispute at the Mercantile Pub Group. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life, June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me just remind you that you can download this podcast for free from iTunes and you'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. For this segment of the show, I'm joined in studio by Irish Times business journalist Mark Paul, Joe Brennan and Owen Burke-Kennedy and by our legal correspondent, Colm Keena. We'll be talking about housing, pubs, Brexit and our dad's IPO in New York. And Joe, I think that's where we'll start. Um, Paul Coulson, the Irish uh, financier, is bringing his glass and metal container manufacturing company to the New York Stock Exchange. That's happening right now. I think the bell is probably uh, just rung on that IPO. Take us through the details. Big numbers involved. Yeah, Paul has just uh, rung the, the, the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange, kind of marking the first day of trading for the for the stock. Um, the This has been a long time coming. So back in 2011, Paul Coulson um, first kind of mooted the idea of mm. uh, bringing this company, which he took private back in 2011. And it has its roots in the old Irish glass. Yeah, and it goes out. right back to 1932. This is the, the Irish glass bottle size. He took it private, uh, split it up, the, the, the property company uh, from the, the, the glass operations, took the took the glass operations private in 2003 and went on a massive spending spree since then, um, largely using the, the, the high-yielding uh, junk bond market to uh, to fund the, the acquisitions. Over the last 15-odd years, he spent about $7.5 billion on acquisitions. Yeah, it's quite impressive particularly when you think about the global financial crash. Yeah, I mean, he was most acquisitive when uh, the, the, the global financial crisis was uh, was ongoing as Ireland Inc. was deleveraging. This guy was actually spending uh, and was able to uh, get the backing of uh, of bond investors internationally to uh, to go about expanding the business. So they went, it's even in the last five or six years, the real expansion has happened. But he considered that two-thirds of his business now is metals. They weren't in the metals business back in 2009. They bought a, a Dutch business back in 2010 and that then set them on the road for, 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 for that. Last year was their biggest deal ever. I think people thought before they did this deal, this was a beverage cans uh, manufacturing business they bought from uh, Ball mm. uh, Corp and Wrexham who were undergoing their own merger. I think before that people thought it was fairly toppy in terms of its own um, its own debt level and its ability to be able to finance further acquisitions through, through debt. But they actually managed to do it, got the backing and if you look at the, the figures, the debt ratio versus its earnings only moved up incrementally to 5.4 times versus 5.2 the previous year, even with that buying a $3.4 billion business in, in the meantime. OK, well, let's talk about this IPO in the New York <coughs> Stock Exchange. It's going to value the company at, what, around $4.4 billion? Yeah, so uh, last night, the stock price, they, they gave a range last week of 17 to $20. Uh, it priced at the upper end $19, and that valued the business itself at $4.45 What's Paul Coulson's stake worth his, now? At that at that rate, his stake is worth about one point five billion, uh, one point four something billion uh, dollars. Right. Okay. Saucy. And how are they going to use the proceeds? How much are they going to raise? And how are it's they a small amount. It's only it's only six point nine percent stake. They're, they're of a stake they're selling with in the IPO now. The the so underwriters of the business. Terms? $308 million. So it's a tiny amount, but they have said they will use that to, to accelerate the deleveraging of, of the business. 
this does as well is it gives them a currency. Uh, this business is it's a it's a it's a slow or no growth business uh, industry. So Coulson has been pretty clear that the way he's going to drive profits is to continue to acquire businesses, crank out synergies, boost the earnings, and that's that's how you grow this business. Okay, now, as I mentioned, the shares were just going live as we were coming on stream. I think we might get a little update from you a little later on before we close the show just to see how they've done in early trading. But, Joe, you were also reporting this week about Bank of China's plans to set up an Irish branch of its UK operation under EU passporting rules. Uh, Very topical, obviously, in the wake of Brexit, etc., although this doesn't necessarily fit into that category given that it's a a passporting out of the UK. Just explain the backdrop of that to us. And how many jobs potentially are we talking about? Well, it could be the shortest uh, passporting uh, of a, a, a bank in, in history, given that uh, it's basically, it's only opening a branch, an Irish branch of, uh, Bank of China is only opening an Irish branch of the of, of the of UK, UK subsidiary. UK subsidiary. If, the, if there's a hard Brexit, as most people expect, it won't be able to use that to passport. So we'll have to set up something separate, a separate entity. Mm. If it were well, to Presumably Ireland around. will be well placed if we already have a branch here. It, possibly, but it's, you know, it, it's not, it, most of the business that, that uh, they do, most of the banking business that Bank of China do uh, is in the UK through a, a pure bank. It has, obviously, an aviation uh, company in Ireland, a fairly sizable aviation uh, company, BOC uh, Aviation in, in Ireland, uh, which obviously is its own entity. But it, it, it's not clear how much Bank of China business is done uh, in in Europe. Many uh, many customers they actually deal with in Europe. Mm. Whether they actually need a fully fledged uh, EU subsidiary to do business in Europe. Okay. Well, let's let's assume that they're going to continue to set up the branch. How many jobs? Any sense? Um, when you look at the, the company itself in, in London, you've only about uh, about three hundred odd employees. Uh, I'd say be fairly low single digit, low double digit figures that okay. they'd, they'd be able and to employ. Plenty of speculation around as to which financial services firms and indeed other companies might move to Ireland post Brexit. What are you hearing? Yeah, I suppose in the last week there's been a lot of uh, talk about uh, Luxembourg. Luxembourg has been kind of uh, stealing a march on, on other countries. Uh, you saw AIG, the insurance giant, which was expected to set up a EU base in Ireland, set up in in in, in Luxembourg a few weeks ago. M and G, the the money manager, it was also planning to set up a, a fund management company in Ireland. It has gone to uh, gone to um, to Luxembourg as well. And Blackstone, which has a, a sizable operation in Ireland, not least that it has a size well, debt business in Ireland has also gone the Luxembourg route. And that's kind of uh, prompted uh, comments from uh, Owen Murphy, the junior finance minister, to uh, say that some cities are, are marketing themselves very aggressively and he's talking about mm. uh, brass plate operations elsewhere. So there's a lot of mud being fl- flung at this stage. In, in Ireland, still still early days, um, Barclays um, said in January that they're looking to set up their EU uh, hub in, in Ireland mm. post-Brexit. Bank of America, um, a few weeks ago, we reported that they were um, moving about 100, they were going to employ another additional 100 people in their um, technology hub. And more recently, they're saying yesterday that uh, that Dublin would be the natural kind of default hub uh, in, in the event of Brexit. Okay, Owen, that leads us neatly on to housing because all of these new jobs coming into Dublin or even other locations, they're going to need somewhere to live. Uh, housing obviously is a bit of an issue at the minute with a shortage of stock in the market. Some interesting articles uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks about this. Uh, one in particular from architect Mel Reynolds, who's suggesting that increased supply in new housing won't necessarily translate into more affordable homes for people to live in. 
Yeah, it's a very interesting point. Uh, for years, we've been told that uh, supply is the panacea for our housing woes. But uh, Mental Relance has been kind of analysing price variations and rents over about three or four decades. And what he's found is that uh, not once in 40 years has an increase in supply uh, led to a downward shift in price. So even at the high water mark in 2006, when we built 92,000 homes, uh, property prices increased by 14%. Now, you'll say that was at the height of the boom, it was credit fueled, but essentially the same principle applies, and it applies in all property markets in big cities around the world. Essentially, supply tends to kind of lag price, which means that um, when price goes up, it becomes more uh, commercially viable for developers to start developing. To cut well, along, it's a, bit, it's a bit depressing, isn't it? I mean, it's particularly a little bit for depressing. people who are hoping to get on the property ladder. It is a bit depressing. Uh, the government's plan is to crank up uh, the supply of new homes to about 25,000, 30,000 a year. Now, that is going to increase supply for certain types of homes, for certain levels of homes. The problem is, at the bottom end of the ladder, the affordability problem is going to remain challenging for many, many people. And the example he gives, there's, there's no... There's no um, real definition of what an affordable home is but the example that he kind of proffers in his piece is that it might be in around the 280,000 mark for Dublin now not for the rest of the country now he bases this on basically a family with two incomes earning 80,000 a year and qualifying for a mortgage under the current rules of 280,000 now the problem is uh, 280,000 uh, pound uh, euro homes in Dublin are kind of non-existent at the moment and all the new uh, units coming on, on on stream are way in excess of this. So the affordability circle is just unsquared at the moment. Mm, I think the Society of Chartered Surveyors have said that maybe a new home in Dublin you're looking at really 330,000 euro as being the, the minimum yeah. sort of build cost. The typical tree factoring in a, a profit for developers Factoring well. in a typical profit for developers developers not an excessive one but a three bed semi-detached house in Dublin and this isn't necessarily in the city centre uh, is 330,493 euros according to them right now, on a more positive note, there there are some encouraging signs in terms of planning permissions coming through the system. Some uh, data uh, released by Davy today showing figures for Q4. Yeah, the latest kind of Q4 figures from the CSO show a certain uptick in uh, Q4 planning permissions. And this is one barometer of, of what's coming on screen. And it's not massive. It's about a 7.8% rise uh, quarter on quarter. Um and that shows that uh, the construction boom that we see beginning is kind of underway. Will it be enough to meet the needs uh, in the market? It doesn't seem like anything like our needs. At the moment, um, we're building around 15,000 units a year. Now, that figure, though, is mm. disputed. But uh, the RSI and other think tanks think it needs to get up to around 30 even to meet demand. And there's also still a backlog of demand that's not been stated this year or last year or earlier. Okay, Joe and Omber Kennedy are going to leave us now at this point, but staying on the subject of housing, uh, Colm, you've been reporting on a row relating to Walford on Shrewsbury Road, which was once uh, the most expensive residential home in the country, with a price tag of €58 million Euro in 2005. Fill us in. That's right. It sold for um, €58 million in 2005, and it's been empty ever since. Mm. And, and there was a lot of confusion as to who bought the property. There was a mystery yeah. over, over who owned it, and it was still being reported as you know, not clear who owned it up to 2011, 2012. But it since emerged that it was bought by Sean Dunn, the property developer. He said he has said in uh, in court filings that he didn't even look at the house, didn't go to have a look at it before he bought it. Yeah, but um, nevertheless, he bought the house, and um, his his position is that um, 
he bought it in trust. He he bought it for, well. He bought it and transferred it into held, then held it in trust uh, for his wife Gail Dunn, and that uh, in around the time that he um, he became bankrupt in two thousand and thirteen, she sold it to uh, a Cypriot trust called Yesrep for a little bit more than fourteen million euros. Um, the solicitor who acted for Gail Dunn in that uh, transaction is a man called Don McAuliffe in Dublin, and he has he has said that he got all his uh, instructions from Sean Dunn uh, in relation to it. Although he was acting from Gail Dunn, for Gail Dunn, he, uh, uh, his uh, contacts were with Sean Dunn. So it was sold sold in 2013 to Yesrep, the Cypriot Trust, the ownership of which is not uh, clear. Um, and the meanwhile, Sean Dunn was bankrupt, and. Um, then, more recently, the official assignee who looks after the estates of bankrupt people, um, Chris Lahan, he heard that this the house was up for sale and uh, he started to investigate and he found out that the house was indeed on the market. Um, so, a number of things happened then. Um, he uh, found out that Sean Dunn was acting for Yesrep in, in relation to the negotiations on price and so on. He uh, issued proceedings against Yesrep uh, in the courts and also issued a thing called, uh, called a list pendants, which is a notification that the property is subject of legal proceedings. I suppose it would put people on notice if they were going to trade in the property. But meanwhile, it emerged that um, a trust uh, uh, linked to Dermot Desmond, but apparently uh, uh, the beneficiaries are his children, had bought the house, again, for something a little bit more than um, 14 million. That was, I think, in December, January of this year, December of last year, January of this year. And so now we have a sort of interesting three or four, three, three-way legal proceedings dispute uh, going on down the courts, all of which involve Walford. Um, one of them is against uh, Chris Lahan against Yesreb uh, in relation to the property. He believes that the property was at all times controlled by the Duns and forms part of and, Sean, and Sean he basically wants it to secure it for Sean Dunn's creditors yeah, you, well, and he yes and meanwhile he's seeking to delay uh, Sean Dunn's uh, period of bankruptcy uh, as while he continues uh, to investigate the ownership of Yasser and um, that's before the courts as well um, and then uh, lastly um, on Monday uh, Dermot Desmond or not Dermot Desmond or the Celtic trustees who are linked to the trust uh, brought a case against uh, Chris Lahan uh, uh, saying it, it wants a, a declaration of clear title so it's, a, it's saying you might have your issues with Sean Dunn and Yesrub and so on uh, but we've we want uh, we bought the house we paid for it and we want clear title now that's a bit complicated because meanwhile 14 million has gone off to uh, I think it's with a solicitor's firm in Switzerland and um, I understand it's in an escrow account, but um, uh, I think Chris Lahan wants to keep it open that, you know, that that's really money Mm. that should belong to the estate bank. And has Sean Dunn uh, made any, has he given any statements in relation to all of this? Well, his position is that he he acted as, or the the position that's before the court, as I understand it, is that he acted as negotiator for Yesrep. Again, uh, by the time it was being sold... uh, this year, or last, late last year, uh, Don McAuliffe, the solicitor who'd acted for Gail Dunn, was by now acting for Yesreb, and he got his instructions from um, Sean Dunn in relation to Yesreb. He acted, Sean Dunn acted as Yesreb's representative, and um, 
the uh, house was sold to Dermot Desmond. Um, so Sean Dunn's position is that uh, he held it in trust for his wife and his wife sold it in 2013. All right. So where does it go from here? Column it sounds like this could uh, run and run. Well, it's all going to end up before the judge who's handling the bankruptcy issue, it seems, uh, Miss Justice Costello, and she'll have to sort out the mess. Try and figure it all out. OK. Uh, happy to say that uh, we're rejoined by Joe Brennan, who comes in uh, bearing glad tidings, perhaps, about Arda's IPO price. Yeah, certainly for, for, for Paul Coulson, anyway. Um, the stock has jumped uh, seven, more than 17% in the first 20 minutes of trade to as high as 22.25 wow. versus $19 that it was set at last uh, last night when they priced the, the issuance. That values the overall company about $4.9 billion. And the, sorry, the, the equity at $4.9 billion and the, the company at almost $12 billion, including the debt. Right, and Paul Coulson, have you done the back of the envelope calculation on Paul Coulson? His stake has been watered down uh, by the placement, about 33.5, haven't done the back of an envelope, it's about 1.5, I'd say. All right, Joe, thank you for that. Um, Come to Mark Paul now, Uh, another legal row, if you like, brewing uh, at the Mercantile Pub Group in Dublin, which you've been covering. Tell us about the background to that dispute. Yeah, it's a a bar brawl, good and proper. Um, It's a dispute between the shareholders in the Mercantile Group, just to, to remind listeners what that group is. It's effectively... Um, a group of the biggest and best-known pubs in Dublin city centre um, uh, and some restaurants as well. In that, you would have the likes of Whelan's. Um, you would have uh, the, the pub next door to that, uh, Opium, I think. You would have Café on Seine and, and Pichet Restaurant and, and other places. And there's, uh, I suppose there's two shareholder blocks there. On one side, you have Frank Leeson, who's a, a, a stalwart of the Irish pub scene, and he would have owned the Mercantile Pub Group, as it was called before. And then on the other side, then, you have... Um, uh, some Irish-American investors and some Irish investors who previously owned the Capital Bars Group that merged with the Mercantile Group a year ago to create that the That includes the group. former founders of Satanta Sports. That's right. Um, um, through their investment company, Danu, and they own about 15% of the Mercantile Group. Um, they have their other financial backers, uh, include two US businessmen, uh, well, Irish businessmen who are now based in the US. You've got Morris Regan, who is, uh, I, I, I think he's born in Kerry. He's a, a building contractor in New York. And then you have a a gentleman by the name of Michael Breslin uh, who previously owned a scaffolding company with his brother uh, in, in the States but an Irishman a Mies man I think hmm. um, originally so what's happened is that Frank Leeson um, was the chief executive of the combined group um, and remains the chief executive but he has been removed from day to day authority of positions he's fallen out with Michael Breslin over the running the operation um, and the strategy uh, pretty much everything um, um, they're, uh, they, they, they've fallen out over absolutely everything it, it appears in, 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 in the right that has come before the course so far. So what happened was uh, just before Christmas, a couple of days before Christmas, only one year after the group, the merge group was formed, um, uh, uh, Frank Leeson was did not, not removed from his position, but he was he was removed from his authority. Um, mm. um, Put on gardening leave, I suppose. Es- essentially, yes. Um, and there had been a row between the two sides, a, a, a number of financial rows. So the... the uh, a company linked to Morris Regan and to Michael Breslin um, then filed court proceedings against Frank Leeson, claiming that he owed them 4.6 million euros. That was that was based on a deal. And then when the most recent thing to happen then on Monday of this week was that Frank Leeson came in and launched a second legal case um, uh, in which he is claiming that his interests as a minority shareholder in the Mercantile Group are being oppressed. Um, so um, there are many, many facets to row, and it's, it's very, very complex. It involves pubs that are inside the Mercantile Group and outside the Mercantile Group. But basically, it's, a, it's a, 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 an incredible fallout between the shareholders and the best-known pub group yeah, in the country. and in a very short space of time as well. Colm, you've also been covering this case 
and particularly David Drum, bizarrely, the former Anglo-Irish Bank uh, chief executive, has been has been dragged into this case, uh, and that's something you've been covering. That, that's correct. Yeah, when it came before the, the courts um, um, in February, and uh, they were looking for the judgment order against Frank Gleeson, it was an exchange of legal letters, and they, they came before the courts. Frank Gleeson made this claim that Michael Breslin had, at one stage suggested David Drum has financed the director of the group, and the uh, the other side then responded to their solicitors saying that this claim was completely fictitious, absolutely refu- refuted and was the only purpose of making the claim was to cause scandal and reputational damage to the shareholders. Mark, the judge in the case has suggested mediation uh, in this dispute. That's right, Brian McGovern, the judge on Monday, he sort of whispered it almost in the end. He leaned forward um, um, from, I, I don't know what you call it, the place that the judge sits in, but he, he leaned forward and, and he very quietly whispered down to the, to, to the barristers below him saying, look, um, um, you might consider mediation because nobody wants their personal their personal finances um, um, pulled out in open court. Uh, he did it almost in a, in a in a patrician sort of a way. I, I, I thought when he was leaning forward, and what the the, the barristers um, replied to him was that was that mediation is something that they had spoken about. Um, he didn't indicate that they had entered mediation um, yet, and, and so we don't know. So there's two separate legal cases. Um, you've got a pub group uh, in which the shareholders uh, uh, you know, kind of have fallen out. So it's got to end somewhere. In, yeah. in, in either either um, one side will buy the other out. Um, or, or well, which is something which is inherently possible with a pub group. You could also have an asset split, you know, because a group comprises twelve pubs. So you take six, and I'll take six, or you take four, and I'll take eight. Um, um, so it's it's it's, conce- it's it's conceivable there could be an asset s- split if one side or the other doesn't have the cash to buy the other side out, um, which is also uh, an, uh, an aspect. So you know, look, d- d- uh, by by bringing an oppression uh, of, of minority shareholders' case, what Frank Leeson may be trying to do is get the court to order because they do that in oppression cases. Sometimes they they can order a price. Um, okay. That one side to buy the other out, or they can order how a company is split. So it's 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 one way of of bringing this to a resolution. All right, we'll see how that plays out. Um, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to David Cullinan, Harry McGee, Joe Brennan, Mark Paul, Colin Keena, and Owen Burke Kennedy. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Remember that this podcast is available to download for free from iTunes, and you'll also find it on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. And you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email. At irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.